invite you to turn to John chapter 15, where we'll read the text for this morning's message. John 15, beginning at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. I wonder what you would say if I asked you, what's the most urgent need in the Western church today? That's the question that Don Carson in this book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, poses at the beginning of the book. We bought a lot of these and have them on the table out there for sale, and I'm going to refer to this book as I go through the message this morning. We always try to pick one book that would uh, stoke your engines to pray. The subtitle of this book is Priorities from Paul and His Prayers, the study of Paul's prayers. He poses that question, what's the most urgent need in the church today? And he asks, is it the need for sexual purity in a culture that has basically been utterly overwhelmed, it seemed, and addicted to and preoccupied with sexuality? Or he asks, is it possibly the need for integrity and generosity in financial matters in a world that seems bent on doing anything, including sacrificing our children, if we could just buy and have a little more and a little more time to spend it? Or is it perhaps evangelism and church growth? Or is it perhaps a disciplined Bible study and more academic rigor in the handling of spiritual things? He walks through each of these in his introductory chapter here, giving reasons why he does not think those are the most urgent needs of the hour in the church in Western Christendom. And the answer he gives is this, quote, There is a sense in which these urgent needs are merely symptomatic of a far more serious lack. The one thing we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. And then he says that one means of coming into a personal, experiential, deep, real, biblical, sustained, durable, true knowledge of God is prayer. It's not the only thing necessary, but it is an absolutely indispensable step on the way to knowing God, the way the Western church seems to have forgotten how to know God. He says, we've learned how to organize, build institutions, publish books, insert ourselves into media, develop evangelistic strategies, administer discipleship programs, but we have forgotten how to pray. 
He gives an illustration of a couple of years ago, 50 students who presented themselves at a seminary in North America as candidates to go out under a mission agency for the summer. And when they were rigorously interviewed to see their fitness, it found that there were three of them, 6%, who had regular times for Bible reading and prayer. We have the impression that our pastors and our missionaries are the model prayers and Bible meditators. You would be shocked if you knew the private lives of many pastors and many missionaries. And they need, we need, to be prayed for. We succumb as easily as anybody to the tyranny of the urgent where we think getting some report written or some committee work done or some sermon prepared or some visa pursued, far more important than an hour spent on our knees. We are as vulnerable as anybody to that kind of deceit from the evil one. J.I. Packer wrote in his pilgrimage of prayer, quote, I believe that prayer is the measure of the man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. Now, Carson's aim in writing this book is to reform our prayer life. And through reforming our prayer life, help us to go deep in our knowledge of God and our trust of God and our obedience of God. And he knows that the most powerful agent for reform in the world is the word of God. The Word of God that we've been worshiping over this morning is the powerful means that God has always used in history to reform His church, whether it be prayers or anything else. And therefore, he's right to make his book on prayer a study of what the Bible says Paul prayed for. And I commend that book to you. It costs $10.50 on sale. And it would be worth it to you. I hope before the end I'll be able to say a few things to encourage you to become readers of that kind of book if you're not. Most of you in this room right now probably did not read one book all the way through in 1992. I know that. Most people are not readers. But I'm going to try to tell you some things before we're done that will enlarge your hope and expectation that God might have some exciting things in store for you. But the reason he's right to make a book on prayer based on Bible is John 15, 7. And it's the reason that I have chosen to preach two messages on this verse in its two halves, one this Sunday and one next Sunday, sandwiching prayer week. The verse says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's the first half of the verse, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So you see the verse has two halves, one for this Sunday, And one for next Sunday. And the two halves are very distinct in their logical relationship. The first half is a condition. Starts with if, right? If you do something, and then there's a then half, a a result from the condition. And the condition is, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. I'm going to talk about that this morning, especially the my words abide in you. Hence our focus in worship. The second half is the result of meeting the condition, namely, you can ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. So we talk about the condition this morning, the words of God abiding in us, and next Sunday we talk about the upshot of having that in your life, namely, a very powerful and effective ministry in prayer. 
Carson is right that the greatest need of the hour is to know God. And he's right that prayer is a crucial step toward that. And I want, therefore, very much for Bethlehem to be a place of prayer, small group prayer, private prayer, congregational prayer, extraordinary prayer, prayer for healing, fasting and prayer, prayer that prevails, prayer that requests, prayer that's authentic, adoring prayer, all kinds of prayer in all kinds of situations, in every gathering, a church that is just permeated by a spirit of prayer so that like when Marty down here and the rest of us went biking not long ago, we prayed. I mean, can you imagine another group of bikers stopping to pray and all their garb ready to get on their bikes and ride for 50 miles and they pray on Saturday morning? That's the way it ought to be. Just a saturated Life of prayer. So you pray at your parties and you pray at your small groups and you pray as families and you pray at meals and you pray at committee meetings and you pray in the car. I knew a missionary who worked in Afghanistan and he told me in Boston that uh, we got into his car to go over and see Mrs. John Harold Ockengay. About 1988 I was there before she died the next year. And it was about a one mile drive. And he said, let's pray. God, give us a safe trip as we drive over to see dear Ms. Ockengay. Amen. And I kind of looked at him and said, you always do that? And he said, ever since I used to minister in Afghanistan, I do. The three times I forgot to pray before I drove in Afghanistan, I had accidents. And he just went on to talk about the darkness and the enemy and the dangers in the missionary life. He prays every time he gets in the car. Well, enough to give you the spirit of what I'd like to see be the case here at Bethlehem in the year to come. Now, let's go to the text. The two questions we need to ask of the first half of the verse here is, what does it mean, and then how do you do it? How do you get it into your life? If my words abide in you, you will have an effective prayer life. So what is this if? What is this my words abiding in you? The best way to get at the meaning is to look at verses 4 and 5, I think, and compare them to verse 7. Verse 4, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. And then the result will be fruit bearing. Then in verse 5, the same pair turns up. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. So you have those two pairs. Abide in me and I in you. You in me, I in you. Now, verse 7, something in the second part of that pair shifts. And noticing that will key us into what that shift means. John says, instead of, if you abide in me and I abide in you, as he did in verses 4 and 5, he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now, that's no accident. Light is shed on those two verses by seeing what becomes interchangeable there. If my words abide in you takes the place of if I abide in you. So right off the bat, I think one of the things we can say is that Jesus made that change to explain in part what it means for him to abide in us. Namely, it means to welcome him into our life as one speaking It means to receive him and welcome him as one who has opinions and views 
and convictions and promises and principles and commandments. We do not welcome a silenced, lip-zipped Christ when we have Christ abiding in us. We welcome a, a voluble Christ. A Christ who is speaking. A Christ who knows things. A Christ who has views about society, about sexuality, about money, about marriage, about children, about education. We welcome a speaking Christ. And to have Christ in us is to have his ideas in us as ours. It means to receive word, opinion, viewpoint from heaven into our lives. But now turn it around, because what we really want to know is not so much what does it mean to have Christ abiding in us. Our text says, have the word abiding in us. Now, what does that mean? Well, besides what I've just said, it means not just receiving a dead word, not just memorizing lines, not just taking a little red book and reading the sentences of Mao or some other book on Marx or some other book on a Hindu uh, favorite. It means when you see a word of Christ, taking it as spoken by a living person. So when you put together verses 4 and 5 with verse 7, having words abiding in you does not mean the same thing as memorizing a phone number. It means having a living being present speaking the word that you're reading in the Bible. So that to have the words of Christ abiding in you is to read the words and self-consciously acknowledge and believe that they are right now by the living Christ being addressed to you. They are living words. The words that I speak to you are spirit and life, Jesus said. And therefore, having words abiding in us means having Christ speaking, abiding in us, or words spoken by the living Christ abiding in us. It means taking a word, for example, like if you're reading through the Bible and you come to this word in John 10, 10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. When you read that word, if that word enters into you, if it abides in you, like this verse says it should, if it abides in you, you will receive it like this. You will say, thank you, Jesus, for coming into the world. Praise you, Jesus, that you are a life giver. I believe you, Jesus, that your intention is abundant life for me. I ask you now, fulfill that purpose. In other words, when you hear a word from the Scriptures or read in a devotional book or on the radio or coming out of my mouth, to have that word abiding in you, like this verse says, is to receive it as spoken by the living Christ and respond to it in faith and in obedience or in praise or in repentance or however the word appropriately gives an impact in your life. If my words abide in you means if I abide in you speaking my will, you hearing it. Or if my words abide in you means if my words are received, remembered, believed, pondered as living words, living words of the living Christ. Second question, how do we do this? How do we get the words of Christ into us? And what I want to do is give you eight very practical suggestions for your life in 1993 of prayer. That is, how does the use 
of the Bible. The words of God and of Christ help you become an effective prayer. How do you get them abiding in you? Number one, prepare a way this morning, sometime today, to remind yourself of all the reasons that the Scriptures give that it is good for you to have the Word of God abiding in you. Prepare a way to remind yourself how good it is for you. In John 15:11, four verses later, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that your joy might be full. That my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. In other words, when I tell you, seek to have the word of God abiding in you, this is not coming from Jesus as an onerous burden. This is a strategy for joy. I have spoken to you. My words are for joy. Now, if you have a hard time being motivated to read the Bible, you need to take a printer from somewhere at work and use big 3,000-point type and put it across many pages and hang it up over your door. I have spoken that your joy might be full. Is your joy full? Answer, no. Well, read. (laughs) Take up and read. That's why I have spoken. Or another possibility would be this. Take this bullet right here and look at page two and put a big box around that song that this quartet sang. Cut it out with the scissors and put it over your sink where you do the dishes or wherever because it gives you about eight reasons why you should love the Bible and love being in it. It restores the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. It's more desirable than gold. It brings great reward. Put that somewhere. You've got to preach to yourself because I'll tell you, the devil is speaking to you every day. This is a waste of time. There are more important things to do. It's boring. It wouldn't produce any effect. It's not going to have any difference in your life. His message is coming through loud and clear because he fears the Bible. It is the sword that runs him through. Therefore, you've got to counter that with truth. And there's a lot of truth. Or take pages 119 to 125 of Desiring God, where I put all the reasons I could think of to read the Bible. I called it the kindling of Christian hedonism, which means joy. Do what you have to do to remind yourself it's worth it to have the words abiding in you. That's number one. Number two... Plan a place and a time where you will read and think about the Bible each day this year. Put it on your calendar as an appointment with a person. And if anybody says, can we meet then? You say, I already have an appointment with a very important person. It is more important than anybody who asks for your time. President of the United States, Pastor John, mayor, wife, husband, daughter, son. God is more important. Write it into your calendar and keep it as a date you will not break. Carson, in his book, when he gives reasons for why people don't pray, the very first one he gives is... We don't plan. Much praying is not done because we do not plan to pray. We do not drift into spiritual life. 
We do not grow in prayer unless we plan to pray. That means self-consciously setting aside time. The biggest stumbling block right now in 1993 to your not praying through January is that you don't plan it. That's the biggest stumbling block. You hope it. As you go to bed, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray tomorrow. And if you don't plan when, you won't pray tomorrow. Satan will see to it. And he'll use the most wonderful things, like a telephone call from me. Or your my father called me on New Year's. My father hasn't called me on New Year's for years and years. He doesn't usually take the initiative. I usually call my father. Well, he called. I was sound asleep. Daddy, why'd you call? But you know, I was up till 2 a.m. the night before. I didn't say that because I was so thrilled. The point is, he, he made me weary and tired that day. He'd have any intention of doing that. It was the best thing he's done in years. God, isn't this crazy? That it's good people who will wreck your rest and wreck your Bible time. They have no intention, and I don't know how Satan pulls that off or what it is, but it isn't just ugliness and horribleness in the world that pulls you out of your hour of prayer. It's good things. Good, 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 good things. I, I wouldn't take back that phone call. And that's what I've seen in my life again and again and again. My prayer life gets wrecked with good things. Not adultery. Not dirty movies. Not, just good things. Number three. That one was planet. Number three. Decide ahead of time how you will read the Bible. Coming to the appointed time and place and having no idea where to start in the Bible, no idea where to read in the Bible makes you feel weak and unreal. Take up a plan. So let me give you three ideas here. They're out on the table. Here's number one. We've got lots of these. If you want to make this your means, this is called God Gives Hope and Healing, a topical guide to daily Bible reading through 1993. This is real easy. It doesn't get you through the Bible in a year. Not everybody has to read through the Bible in a year. These are short and they're very pointed daily readings. You can have these free. Just pick them up off the table if you want to try that to see if that helps you. The Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan we've used for years now. This does get you through the Bible in a year. And it's really effective because it takes you just 25 days of each month, leaves you five days to catch up. This is very, very effective. Many of us have used this, and I commend it to you. They're free also out there on the table if you haven't hit upon anything. This right here now is for one week. And I really want everybody to do this. So every, every family or couple take one or two of these. What this is, is a guide for every day this week. Here's Sunday, today, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on. And what it is, is a letter from Jesus to the seven churches of Asia Minor, one for each day, with some prayer suggestions drawn out of it. So it would be just wonderful if in our morning times on Monday and our evening time Wednesday evening, we're all on the same track. So just read that paragraph to start with and then pray through the prayer things. Everybody, just this week, that would be great. So I hope you'll all pick up one of these out on the table out there as well. So the third thing is plan how you're going to read the Bible. Fourth, memorize verses or paragraphs or chapters in the Bible through the year. Memorize things. Memorizing is hard work. And the older you get, the harder it is. It is so much harder now at 46, almost 47, to, to uh, memorize than it was 15 years ago even. 
or 30 especially. But I still work at it because I know there is nothing more powerfully effective in my spiritual life than to have Scripture in my mind, ready to hand. It isn't just that it's there for crisis when you need it, though that's wonderful, especially in the ministry. But also, it is there simmering, percolating, transforming your mind all the time. I encourage you to do it. When you memorize the Word of God, it is powerful. Ask yourself, how many people do you know who you would regard as spiritually walking with the Lord, in tune with His will, having effectiveness in prayer, modeling their life in humility and servanthood, who are not people who ooze Scripture? Ask yourself, do you know any like that who do not ooze Scripture? I know none. There is a direct correlation between how filled you are with the Bible and how spiritually and closely you walk with God. Number five, take periodic retreats and saturate yourself with the Bible with overdoses until you feel like you are lifted into the presence of the Lord in a remarkable way and your prayers are uncluttered by worldly thinking. Wesley Duell, who wrote A Blaze for God and um, several other books on prayer that we've used, he wrote, I have at times read as many as 50 chapters from God's Word before I was completely alone with God on retreat. But on some of those occasions, I have received such unexpected guidance that my life has been greatly benefited. 50 chapters it took that man to get out of touch with the flesh. Have you ever tried that? An overdose? For two or three hours, just read and read and read and read and read until God comes down and the world backs off and you have free access with him because the mind is uncluttered. I commend it to you. The church will be open for such retreats this week. Plan them. One a month or so, maybe. Number six, keep a journal and write out your thoughts as you meditate on Scripture. I've said this before, and it's true. Writing is a way of seeing. Writing is a way of seeing. I wrote a little poem, four lines. I know not how the light is shed, nor understand this lens. I only know that there are eyes in pencils and in pens. (laughs) There are. All I have to do is get you to try it, and you will believe it. Write the text, a verse or two. Ask the Lord to bring something to mind and write what you think. And you will see so much more in that verse than you ever thought you could see. The main obstacle to seeing is haste. Haste and inattention. So one of the ways the lens works is just by slowing us down. Try a journal. You don't have to keep it every day. You don't have to use it all the time. Just try it sometimes and see what happens. Number seven. I come back to this issue of reading books like this one. Read great Christian writers who know God deeply and who saturate their books with the Bible. It's like reading the Bible 
through the hearts and minds of great knowers and lovers of God. That's why I read certain writers and not others. Certain writers don't seem to have the mood and spirit and saturation of Scripture about them. Others, you can almost hear Scripture in every line. And it's like reading the Bible through the heart of, say, Jonathan Edwards or J.I. Packer or Don Carson. Now, let me say that word of encouragement as we close here regarding you non-readers. Suppose you read slowly like I do, say about 200 words a minute. That's slower than most of us speak. So I read last night at a comfortable pace and I measured it. I read, when I'm reading comfortable pace with understanding, I read real slow, 200 words a minute. Isn't that awful? Be encouraged. If you read 15 minutes a day for a year, you know how many minutes you read in a year? Just 15 minutes now. Say 15 minutes before supper every day or 15 minutes in the morning every day or 15 minutes just before you go to bed. You'll read 5,475 minutes in the year. At 200 words a minute, that's 1,095,000 words. Now, what's an average book? This book right here is 226 pages long. I counted the words on a page here. Average 360 words on a page. You know how long it'll take you to read this book? If you start this morning and read 15 minutes a day at my slow pace, you'll be done in three weeks, 21 days. And if you keep it up all year, you'll read 13 of these at 15 minutes a day. Now, I want to ask you this. Is there anything in your life that might possibly be less important than reading a book about God, a book about Christ, a book about the Holy Spirit, a book about prayer, a book about the will of God, a book about faith, a book about Christianity and culture, a book about the authority of the Bible, a book about contemporary ethical issues, a book about the nature of the church, and three biographies at 15 minutes a day. Is there anything in 1993, that might be less important than that in your life. That's my suggestion number seven. Finally, in all of your reading and all of your meditation, keep the person of Jesus before you. I'm back where I started now. Don't get into a mere academic thing or mere heady thing But all your reading in the Bible and in these other books, on every page, self-consciously be saying to Jesus, speak, grant me to listen, I receive truth, guard my mind, protect me from error, speak to me. And if we do those things or other good things that come to your mind in this week and in this year, then I believe the word of God will abide within us. And next week we'll find out that the result will be whatever we ask in prayer, he will do it. Lord, make us, I pray now, a people of the book. Not a people who delight to argue over nitpicky things, nor are excessively intellectual or academic, though there is a wonderful place for thought but rather people who mingle together serious reading, serious thinking with the living relationship with you, Lord Jesus, who love to hear you speaking directly to our soul as we put an elbow on either side of the Bible, put our cheek in our fists, and meditate over your holy word. Draw near. Give your people this morning a hunger for your word, I pray. 
And all the people said, Amen.